Well, if you were here two weeks ago, you um, heard my first part of this sermon, which was more about how we grieve and why we grieve. It was a very heavy sermon. This is not going to be a heavy sermon, thank goodness. I, I feel like I was thinking earlier, as a counselor, I am always the one up here talking about the really hard stuff, <laughs> it seems. Not just here, but just in general. Um, but um, I, I wanted to talk about how to walk others through grief. So I'm, I was reminded by a friend in the last service. She had um, contacted me weeks ago about a loss and... Um, and I want to say up front, a great book to give people that are grieving that is called Tear Soup. So it's not, I meant to do some things with Tear Soup, but I just didn't have time in the sermon. But it's something that if, if you know somebody that has had loss, it's a great book. It's for kids, it's for adults, it's great. And so I always would suggest um, so today is helping others walk through profound loss. That's a lot of what I'm talking about. But of course, these things that I'm talking about, the points that I bring, can be used for any kind of loss. About four or five days after my husband passed away in his motorcycle accident, um, I, I was pretty, as much as, you know, obviously it was horrible, I, I was pretty numb. And um, I, I remember a little bit of those first few weeks, and there was a lot of, like, sitting on the couch and just being kind of um, My brother-in-law, who was my boy's dad, his, his name was Tom, so brother-in-law Tim was two years younger, and he kind of came in after my husband died and just really rescued me. He, he took care of the hard things that needed to be taken care of, and he came up to me about four or five days into this and said, hey, let's, um, let's take the boys, my three sons, to get suits for the funeral. I think the funeral was like the next day or the day after. And so me being really just kind of still in chalk and numb, I'm like, whatever. So we um, get ready, and I think he really just wanted to get me out. So we went, we went to the mall and um, the store, and we start looking around, and this woman, probably about between 50 and 60, super energetic. She's a saleswoman, so she really fit that, that um, model of, of sales. And so friendly and kind. And she walks over and asked um, how she can help us. And so my brother-in-law said, well, we're here to get suits for these three boys. And she was so excited. And she said, oh, my goodness. And she looked at Kale. And Kale's about um, five at the time, and she gets down eye level, and she goes, what is the occasion? And Kale says, my dad's dead, just like that. And this woman, I mean, I don't remember a lot in that time. I remember her reaction. She didn't know what to do, what to say, where to go. She wanted to, she probably would have paid a million dollars if she could have disappeared that moment. Grief is, it's uncomfortable, right? Like the, the, the grief of other people, people that we care about, their pain and their suffering, it's really uncomfortable. And today I'm going to go, I'm going to take a, a, a deeper dive into um, Job, into the book of Job, because I think that that's one of the most popular stories, right, of grief. But it also sheds light on not just what not to do, I think of what we hear in the book of Job, but it also sheds a little bit of light on what to do. And so we're going to kind of cover um, both those bases. 
So I want to summarize, my thing's falling out. I want to summarize Job um, 1 and 2. So I'm just going to kind of pull it from my phone Bible um, and just give you a quick summary of everything that was going on so that we can kind of have a better understanding of, of my moving forward. So Job lived in the land of Uz. Um, I don't know if, if you know this, but scholars, biblical scholars, believe that this, this book was written right around the time of Genesis. So if it were done, if it were put in the Bible chronologically, it would be put in like just a few chapters after Genesis. Um, um, in the book of Genesis, it, that's when it was placed. That's when this time took place. So Job was considered a man of complete integrity. He feared God and he stayed away from evil. He had seven sons and three daughters. He owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 teams of oxen, and 500 female donkeys. He had many farmhand and many servants. And he, in fact, was considered to be probably the richest person in that area. Job's sons would take turns hosting big feasts. We would probably today call them parties. Um, and he would, his sisters would, would come, and, and they would celebrate sometimes for several days. And Job was so right with God that he would actually, after every single feast, he would get up early the next morning after it was over, and he would offer a burnt offering for his children, praying that if perhaps that his children had sinned against God, that this would bless them. And so he, he, he practiced this regularly. This is how righteous he was. So there was a day that came, the accuser Satan came before the Lord. He came into God's presence. And the Lord asked him, where have you come from? And Satan answered, I've been patrolling the earth and watching everything that's going on. So the Lord immediately said to Satan, well, have you noticed my servant Job? Now, I just, God, I want you to know, like, I would love for you to brag on me. But when it comes to Satan, like, just pretend I don't exist. Right? I mean, so he, he says, have you noticed my servant Job? He's the finest man in all the earth. He is blameless. He is of complete integrity. And he fears God and he stays away from evil. So Satan says, well, yeah. Job has a good reason to fear you, God. He's always, you've always put a wall of protection around him and his home and his property. You've made him prosper in everything he does. Look how rich he is, he says. But reach out and take, take everything away that he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. So God says, all right, you may test him. Whatever you do, though, you can, take, you can mess with all of his possessions, but do not harm him. So Satan left the Lord's presence. One day, Job's sons and daughters were feasting at the oldest brother's home. Job was at home, and a messenger arrived to Job, and he said, Your oxen were plowing with the donkeys feeding beside them. When the Sabaeans raised, um, I'm sorry, raided us, they stole all the animals and killed all the farmhands. I am the only one that I to tell you. And while he was still speaking, another messenger arrived. He said, the fire of God has fallen from heaven and burned up your sheep and all your shepherds, and I'm the only one who's escaped to tell you. 
And while this messenger was still speaking, another messenger came and said, three bands of raiders have stolen your camels and killed all of your servants. I am the only one who's escaped to tell you. And if that wasn't enough, while this one was speaking, the last messenger came and said, your sons and daughters were feasting in their oldest brother's home. And suddenly a powerful wind swept in from the wilderness, hit the house on all sides and the house collapsed and all your children are dead. I am the only one who escaped to tell you. And Job in his righteousness, and, and I don't mean in his pride, I mean truly in his righteousness for God, stood up, he tore his robe in grief, he shaved his head, and he fell to the ground and he worshipped God. He said, I came naked from my mother's womb, and I will be naked when I leave. Then the Lord will give me what I had, and the Lord will take it away. Praise the name of the Lord. And in all of this, Job never sinned in blaming God. So this wasn't enough. So Satan, again, the accuser, comes into the Lord's presence. The Lord asks, where have you come from? He said, I've been patrolling the earth, watching everything what's going, of what's going on. And the Lord asked Satan, have you noticed my servant Job? He's the finest man in all the earth. He is blameless, a man of complete integrity. He fears God and he stays away from evil. And then he mentions, and he has maintained integrity, even though you urged me to harm him without cause. Satan replies, skin for skin. I mean, a man will give up everything to save his life. Reach out and take away his health, and he will surely curse you to his face, to your face. So God says, all right, do with him as you please, but spare his life. So Satan left the Lord's presence, and immediately Job was struck with terrible boils from head to toe. Job scraped his skin with a piece of broken pottery as he sat among the ashes, and Job's wife finally enters the picture. She says, are you still trying to maintain integrity? Curse God and die. But Job replied, should we just accept the good things from the hand of God? and nothing bad. Further out, Job's friends, his three friends, probably closest friends here, about Job's losses, all of his suffering, everything that he's going through. And so they get together and they travel from their homes and they go to, and it says in scripture, they go to comfort and console Job. Their names are Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. And they see Job as they're coming to his home. They see him from a distance, and they don't even recognize him because of the boils. They begin to wail loudly. They tear their robes. They throw dust onto their heads to show Job their grief. And then they sat on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights in complete silence, for they saw that his suffering was just too great for words. So what I want to do is just kind of take a look at the people closest, because that's what we're talking about today, the people closest to Job and how they dealt with him and dealt with his loss and suffering. And the first person that enters the picture, right, is, is his wife. And I'm just going to dismiss her today. I truly am. I, I don't suggest or recommend that we 
you know, tell people to just curse God and die when we're suffering. I don't think that that's the best advice. But she was suffering as well. I mean, she had lost everything that Job had. And so I'm going to give her a little bit of a pass. Today we're going to focus on the three friends. Okay, so the first thing I wanted talk a little bit about what they did right. So first, they showed up, right? Like they, that wasn't easy. That's not up on an airplane over to, to Job's house. Like when they traveled means that they walked or they rode donkeys. That was, that was sacrificial on their part. Um, they also, secondly, they wept and grieved alongside Job. So they tore their clothes. They sprinkled dust on their heads. They they empathized with his pain, and they sat with him while he was suffering. And then last, they sat with him in silence, which I think is such key. And we don't oftentimes, and that's kind of a big part of what I'm going to talk about today, is that's hard for us. It's hard for us as a culture, as a society, but it's also hard while people are in pain to just sit in silence. We want to fix it. And so they gave him some time and some space to be able to just be where he was. So with that being said, what could go wrong, right? Well, interestingly enough, Job's friends showed up on the scene and grieved with him through chapter 2. Chapter 3, Job basically is cursing the day that he ever was born. And in chapter 4, all the way to chapter 25, Job's friends are giving him basically speeches about what he must have done wrong, how he must have sinned, how this is basically his fault. And because he's done something so terrible, he needs to confess it to God to make it right. Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar were all well-intending, I think. I think that they truly had good intentions. But underneath the surface... These three friends were struggling with what we all struggle with when we're confronted with tragedy, feeling out of control, and having no idea what to do. I think watching loved ones specifically suffer is often the catalyst for people saying things that are untrue or are unkind, which is why I want to talk about this today. In the 15 years of counseling that I've done, just forget about my experiences, but in the 15 years of counseling, I've dealt a lot with grief and, and suffering and trauma for people, and I specialize in trauma, so I, I, I'm seeing that more than I'm usually seeing anything. I'm, I'm just going to say, like, probably right underneath their actual trauma, we're having to deal with how people have approached them or what they've said to them or what people are expecting of them. It's, it's right up there with their trauma. It's, it's, it's rough. And I've, you know, I've had it heavy on my heart to always kind of teach on these things. And so I was grateful for the opportunity today. Um, so today, with all of this being said, I've created an acronym that spells grief to just give points. It's kind of easier to when you do something like that. I actually feel like, I kind of feel pastorish. I'm not a pastor at all. I'm not a pastor. But I do feel pastorish because I was like this acronym and thinking, okay, all my points are matching with this. It was kind of cool. Okay, so we're going to start with the first point, which is G, and it give them time. Now, that is, time is a, is a, 
is a difficult word because there is nothing that happens in time. So people don't heal in time. Um, people heal because of the things that they do in the time that they have. That, that is the truth. I've seen many, many people come into my office and the way that they're lamenting and, and grieving, I'm assuming, okay, this just happened. And I've seen people where it was eight years ago or 12 years ago. And, so, and that's because they haven't done anything, any grief work like we talked about in the past. Um, with the time that they've had. So it's not just giving them time, but it's giving them time to actually feel their feelings, give them time and space to be able to go through those stages at whatever pace that they need to go through them. Um, what's really interesting about, especially like really profound losses, losses that are unexpected, um, and, and the closer you are to them, that it actually takes you longer to get out of that shock and that denial. And you don't, you would think maybe that it, you can see shock and denial, but you can't per se. You can see it right away, but it kind of transforms and it looks a little different over, the, over time. But we know that it actually, somebody that's had a profound a year for them to come out of a year. And in our society, in a year, are you, are you better? Are you good? And they are just starting. The, the grieving process, unfortunately. And so we need to remember that um, as they are working through their process and moving through their process, we want to make sure that we refrain from putting our timeline on their process, okay? Um, the second point is R, and it's remember the power of God and his authority in our suffering. So we see this all through Job. God had his hand on Job the entire time. God gave permission to everything that happened. Authority over it. And I think when, we're, when we see people suffering, we forget about God's authority. Um, and not only did God have authority over it, but in the end, God immensely blessed Job later on in life through this, through this, through these tragedies and through these sufferings. Now, as somebody who's walking with somebody who's bereaved, we don't, we don't want to say that, right? We don't want to say that right away. Where God has a plan. God has purpose in your pain. Like, buck up. Think about God. Like, we don't want to say that. But as people that are supporting the bereaved, we do want to keep that in mind and be praying for them because grief is uncomfortable. And so it can help us to kind of release or relinquish some of the control when we can remember that God has this. Um, and also just to be able to see like the other side of it is amazing. People ask me all the time, how do you do what you do? And I'm like, because I get to see the healing. I get to see the glory of God come into life with people when they've walked in my office almost crawling in and you know eventually they are remarried or they've you know been able to really get into a space where they see a redemptive God I know for me I, I'm not at all comparing myself to Job at all but in my loss with my husband and just the pain of everything that we went through even in the marriage um a hundred percent, God did for me what he did for Job. Like, my husband 
is everything that I begged God for and pleaded and, and, and fought for um, with my, my first husband. And so God gave that. I know that. I know it was God. He gave him to me, and he is exactly what I longed for. My third um, point is I identify the physical, emotional, spiritual, and even financial needs that you see the bereaved have and work to meet them if you can. Now, this is an especially you know, sensitive time, so we need to be very trustworthy in, the, in these moments. So if we're you know, seeing needs, don't commit to things that you can't follow through with. That is for sure. Um, and I use the word identify because most of the time, the bereaved don't know what they need. And I, I'm just going to say that's a really tough question, just so you know when someone has had a really heavy loss, to ask them, how are you doing or what do you need? Those, those are really hard questions. Um, I didn't know what I needed. I couldn't have answered that question if, you know, if somebody paid me a million dollars. I couldn't have done that. So we want to make sure as somebody who's walking with the bereaved that we're showing up and we're listening. You know, we're watching everything around. I mean, it could be like, it sounds silly, but picking up dog poop in their yard, right? I mean, that's helpful. Taking the dog to the groomer. I know for me, like somebody, it was the, my husband died the week before school started. And so my, my young, my Kale, you know Kale. Kale was starting kindergarten. And so somebody, I don't know who, somebody took him to go get a shot. We had the appointment, but, you know, somebody just kind of took care of that. Um, and so being able to kind of recognize those things, you're not going to solve everything, you're not going to figure out everything, but being able to just kind of be present instead of asking what they need. Or tell me, tell me when you know what you need, because they probably won't. I know for me, I, um, just a, a story about that, I carry a lot of, um, I have some chronic back pain and neck pain, and sitting for a long time just exasperates it, and then stress exasperates it. So those two things, like I remember being in just a lot of pain in those first few weeks, and there was a knock at the door, and there was a lot of people coming in and out. I never, I don't even think, I think one time I the door, but other than that, it was just, you know, people around, and so there was a knock at the door. I didn't think twice of, about it, and then all of a sudden, I see this man walk in, and he looks at me, and I didn't recognize him at all. And my girlfriend said, he's, he's my chiropractor. And so I just asked him to make a house visit, which he never did, but just because I know that you're in a lot of pain. And that was, I mean, obviously, I, it, I still ch kind of choke up a little bit. That was such an important part for me in, in just meeting a need that I would have completely ignored. There's no way I was going to head over to a chiropractor or anything like that. Um, the GoFundMes, those types of things are, are really, really helpful. The fourth point, E, is empathize with the bereaved's thoughts, their feelings, and their perceptions. So when a, clo when a, a loss is really close, and especially if it's really sudden, most of the time, people that are, are bereaving and, and, and grieving in that time, they don't, um, they don't say things that are really rational. It's just a natural part of the healing process. Um, they say things that can be really shocking. 
um, even scare you if they believe that. And I'm not talking about like at all. I'm not talking about like harming themselves. That's a whole different. That's a that's a a, a side, a different side to this. But I am saying things that just sound rational, or you know, there's a lot of blame, or there's a lot of um, you know shame, or there's guilt. And so what we naturally want to do is lean in and correct them. But um, what that does is it actually stalls the process. And so um, it's far better to validate them and to affirm what they're feeling, even if you don't agree. Typically what will happen is they'll come out of it on their own and they'll recognize the truth. Um, I, I have a story that... It, I, I'm still embarrassed to this day, and I know it's it's ridiculous to be embarrassed, and, and people know around me, you know, why I said what I said, but it's just hard when you're in that place. So it was a, it was about probably seven days after, and there there was so much food, right? People bring so much food, um, and I remember kind of I, I kept everything to myself in this area because there was some shame around my thoughts after my husband died. One of the, the biggest thoughts outside of just the pain of it was, what am I going to do? How am I going to take care of these little boys? And I know this sounds rational to you, because it is rational. But in that space, I wasn't rational. I thought all people would think about is that I care about money. And that was not it. But Tom was our, he was the breadwinner. And so I really seriously was like, we're in trouble, you know? But I didn't say anything. And I remember, again, being so irrational, the food coming in, I was kind of just putting it in the back of my mind. I'll freeze, it's so ridiculous, I'll freeze it all, and then I can feed my kids. Like that, that was the mindset. And so I didn't know, I was 30, I didn't know anything about social security or death benefits, I didn't know anything like that. So um, my girlfriend, she's passed away now. She was my best friend at the time, and she was just there. I mean, she was there morning and night, and she'd head home. She had three little girls of her own and a husband, and so she'd head home at night, and then she'd show back up in the morning. And, and so she had been there for a straight week, and she was getting ready to leave. I was in the living room. My mom was in the kitchen, and I heard my mom say, Shirley, take some food. We have so much food. Take it to your kids, because I know that you're not cooking and shopping, and she's like, that would be amazing. And so I hear this conversation, and my mom starts packing up the food. And I'm just like, it's just like energy is just spilling over. And I just say, you can't take my food. You can't take my food. And my mom, you know, being my mom, Jennifer. What was that? <laughs> yeah, it was like that. And then my, my friend was like, it's okay, it's okay, it's okay. And she's like backing up and she leaves. And I really needed somebody to, to check into that. And, and no one ever talked about it again. But, um, you know, if somebody would have been able to kind of just understand that need or even just say, hey, I could see that you're really upset about the food. What's going on? I, it probably would have been worked out in that moment. But... Um, so recognize maybe what they need and, um, and then empathize with those thoughts and those feelings and all of those things that are so, so My last point is F. Um, this is finding faults or reasons 
um, will not be helpful. So I'm going to read it from here because it, it's wordy, but I'm going to read it twice because I really think that this is such an important point. So finding reasons to help the bereaved make sense of or justify their pain. So I'm going to say it again. Finding the faults or reasons to help the bereaved make sense of or justify their pain will be harmful. Like Job's friends, right? Job's friends knew nobody who said that they loved God the way Job did or was as righteous as Job was or refrained from evil as much as Job did. Like nobody could actually endure that kind of suffering if they lived that kind of life. And so... They, they worked to find faults, and they worked to find reasons to get Job to understand. And it, I don't think it was to blame him. I think it was to get him to be fixed so that he no longer would continue to suffer. And so here's the problem with that, um, is when we try to fix it or we find faults or reasons, is one, you could be wrong, and so you make it worse, because we do that a lot. We... We, we go into this theology, like we know, like people say, you know, oh, your dad's an angel in heaven. That's really bad theology because that people don't turn into angels. That's not okay. I know people told, told my kids, your daddy's watching you from heaven. So, so when they're happy, what happens? Do they feel guilty because daddy's watching them? Like there's all these things that we want to be really careful about when we try to fix it. Um, so you may be wrong or you may be right. Maybe, maybe you are correct in what you want to say or what you want this person to understand. But even if you're right, does that somehow alleviate the pain that they're in? No. And so in those early stages of grief, really try to refrain from that. And I mean early, like months even, um, one of the most damaging things for me, and it, it, this was months into the, after the death of my husband. Um, my husband died drunk on a motorcycle. It took months to figure that out because the toxicology reports take forever. But um, I, I remember a few times, like, running into somebody or seeing somebody at church or, you know, just people kind of checking in as they see me. And at that, I remember at that time, I didn't really like hold back if you asked how I was. I would just be really honest. And a few times people said, but he was drunk, right? And honestly, it was so angering. I wanted to say, you're right, he was drunk. I don't, I don't know what I was thinking. Why am I in so much pain? That makes it all better. Like, because he made a bad decision, the pain that we're in isn't the same? Of course it is. And so those types of statements are really, really damaging. These things minimize grief, and they cause people to question what they're feeling. Um, we clearly see this with Job. Job gets into a space where he starts defending himself. The man just lost everything, everything. And he has to defend himself to his friends who are supposed to be there to comfort and console. So in closing, I think it's important to note how the Lord responds to Job. 
how the Lord dealt with Job's friends. In the last chapter of Job 42, God says to Eliphaz, I am angry with you and your two friends. He said, because you have not spoken the truth about me as my servant Job has. And then he goes on to tell Job to actually pray for his friends and to offer burnt offerings for them, for them to be forgiven. I mean, I think that that's immense when we really think about what Job was going through and the reason why these friends were supposed to be there. So what happens to Job? Well, in that last chapter, verses 12 and 13 say, So the Lord blessed Job in the second half of his life, even more than in the beginning. For now, he had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 teams of oxen, and 1,000 female donkeys. He also gave Job seven more sons and three more daughters. Job lived 140 years after this, living to see four generations of his children and grandchildren. Then he died an old man, and he lived a long and full life. And so, entering the pain of a loved one who is suffering, entering into their pain, is, is being the hands and the feet of Christ. And so I want to charge all of us today with Scripture, Romans twelve fifteen that says, Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Don't fix it. Don't justify it. Don't run away from it. Just mourn. Just be there. Be in it with them. You don't have to say the right thing. I've heard over and over the best thing to say is, I don't know what to say. That's a very loving, kind thing. And so it's just so important to remember that when we lean into their pain, we help them move through their process, okay? Even though it's really, really uncomfortable. Well, thank you for listening, and let me close in prayer. Well, dear Heavenly Father, we come before you, and we're grateful that you teach us through your word and, and even through others, Lord, what you call us to do and, and be in times of pain and suffering and loss. And God, we know that you're present, and we pray for those people, even in this room or who are listening online, that um, if, if they're suffering from loss, Lord, I just pray that they would sense your comfort and they would sense your peace, even in the midst of, of tragedy and turmoil, God, that you do provide for your children. We're grateful for that. And if anyone listening is walking with somebody who's going through that, Lord, we just pray that you'd give them just supernatural wisdom. Give them the ability and the strength to sit in it and to be still and to be present. Give them knowledge of what or what to say and what not to say, Lord. And we just continue to, to seek you. We're grateful, God, for your goodness. We're grateful that even in, in the worst of times that there is hope and that there are blessings because you're such a good God. We love you. We praise you. We give you this time in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.